Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Pack filler. Pack filler. I'm Pat Bolger. I'm Mark Hudson. Pack filler. Welcome to another episode of the Pack Filler Podcast, home to every bad or dumb ass who's ever straddled the top tube. You can be a part of the show on Facebook. Twitter, or dumb old email at info at packfiller.com. Listen while working, training, or just sitting and sipping a cold one. And now your hosts, Pat Bulger and Mark Hodgson. Hey everybody, the return of a great treat for you. The return of the Velamanati, the home of the rules, the home of what I consider the holy scripture that is cycling. And um, once again, it was great to have an opportunity to talk to Frank Strach from Velamanati, the host, the creator, the uh, the guru, I guess we could call him the messiah, that is Velamanati.com. If you have not been to the site, you got to get there. you got to get there right away because these guys have been doing some fun stuff about cycling. Many people take them far too seriously. They are firmly tongue-planted in cheek when they talk about cycling. And Frank is here to talk about a lot of fun stuff. And hopefully we're going to get Frank on a lot more to talk about all kinds of stuff that is related to that great world of cycling. So without further ado, I'm going to shut my pie hole. Mark's not in the studio. Just me and Frank. Here you go. Frank Strock of the Velmanati on the Backfiller Podcast. Okay, if you've heard of the rules, you know of the keepers. If you know the keepers, you know Velmanati. If you don't know Velmanati, you've either, either lived in a cave or in violation of the rules or you don't ride. Basically, that's where we're sitting. Welcome to a special edition of the Packfiller Podcast. I'm Pat Bulger, and on the line today we have hopefully what is going to be a maybe potentially, we don't know, I'm going to have to bribe him, regular segment with a special guest, of course, Frank, the uh, creator of Velamanati.com. Frank, great to have you on, ma'am. 
Thank you. It's a pleasure. Hey, your your site. Uh, you know, we've talked a couple times, and people who follow the show um, hopefully follow your site, or hopefully they find us through you or something like that. Because I don't think we're big enough to be, you know, anywhere in the same league. But you are approaching the state of religious status with this site. <laughs> I mean, it is becoming. I'm waiting for people to be wearing, you know, dark Nikes and drinking whatever Kool Aid you tell them to do. <laughs> Think about this, man. We got a large group of passionate followers who donate to a large portion of their lives in pursuit of the kind of perfection that can only be attained in the afterlife. Can we pretty much say that is a lot of the people who are following the site, right? Yeah, I suppose so. Okay. That's certainly true of me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. There are commandments. There are rules, okay? We're getting even close to religious status here, right? Yep. Okay, and now there's a Bible. <laughs> Okay, you see where I'm going with this here. Okay. Yep, there's a Bible. Yeah, so tell me what's been happening over there, and I guess we could maybe get to the actual, you know, the meat of the product here. Um, yeah, so we, we wrote a book. Um, we were approached by uh, Hodder and Stratton, um, a subsidiary called Scepter, and... Um, yeah, they were dumb enough to think it was a good idea to do a book on us uh, or on the rules. And um, so we sat down and, and wrote them. Um, you know, it's uh, it's one of those things that you have absolutely no concept how much work writing a book is until you sit down and write a book. Um, you know, and, and so, but it was incredibly fun. We, we organized the rules into five chapters, basically, into five sections. Of course, it had to be five. Um, and... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, you know, based on based on their subject matter. So there's, I, I won't tell you all of them, but you know, like based into aesthetics and based into being a disciple and based into the hard men and you know, uh, the bike and the ride. So I guess I did tell you all five. But um, yeah, we organized them that way. Um, you know, there's not a lot of content in there that's actually going to make you a better cyclist. It, you know, it's <laughs> it's mostly about looking good and feeling good. And as Paul Fornell says. Speaking of Paul Fornell, if you haven't read his book Need for the Bike, you're 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 missing out on life. So go go okay, read that. Need for the bike, Paul Fornell right. uh, beautifully puts it, um, you know, saying uh, to go to to look good is already to go fast, um, and that's, <laughs> you know, that's totally true. And that's you know, so we, we love to look good. We love making things as beautiful as possible. Um, I just got a new bike frame painted up in Velominati colors and you know, I can't do anything but stare at it. You oh, know, God. productivity has gone down the toilet. <laughs> so how, with how depth this all goes is, are we looking at new rules beyond the original or is this an ever expanding list? No. So yeah. So the list, you know, has organically developed um, yeah. since 2009 when we started Velominati. Um, you know, and they, they go in order. Once a rule has a number associated with it, it can be deleted, but, it, you know, it can never be moved. So, um, you know, the, the, the rules all have a number, and if we add a new one, it goes to the end of the list. Um, and so, you know, that's the reason why we organized it into five groups yeah. um, and kind of, you know, pulled them together by theme. But, yeah, you know, we'll be adding more rules for sure. In fact, um, Robert Miller just... Uh, recommended two rules. One of them, unfortunately, is too locale specific, but the other one is really, really <laughs> dead on, and that's that you can't ever sprint from the hoods. Um, so we'll be adding <laughs> that one, and so that won't be in the book, of course, because we're we're just going to add it this week or so. Well, um, 
That's what second or third editions. It's like a textbook for Christ's sake. So you might as well <laughs> yeah. think about it yeah. in terms Let's of edition. edition at some point. If, yeah. it, if, it, if, if any of the books sell, we'll probably have to do another edition. <laughs> so how in depth does this go? Are we looking at um, not only the rules themselves, but perhaps maybe even a, a little bit of a, you know, I, I'm wondering, is this like a self-help book for those of out there, those writers out there with sleeveless disease and mid-calf socks and all that kind of stuff? Yeah, it's yeah, I, I would say so. Um, you know, the the first three rules, obey yeah. the rules, um, lead by example and guide the uninitiated. Um, you know, that's that's really what it what the whole book is about. Um, ultimately, you know, um, it's it's, you know, start off by making sure that you're doing doing things the right way and then, you know, help other people who have strayed from the path um, find it again, you know, and so. Yeah, it goes into it goes in depth pretty deeply. You know, we it's it's well over two hundred pages, I think. Um, I actually have to go back and look at the book to get the exact page count, but it's it's over two hundred pages, and um, you know, that's that's a lot more in depth than the rules themselves are. So we get into we get into anything. You know, it's um, everything we wrote about is based on whatever rule it was that 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 was the subject, but. It can be anything. It could be a history lesson on Sean Kelly. Um, it can be uh, a story about um, you know where Rule Twenty Four comes from, for right. example. Or it could just be uh, kind of a rant on why a helmet mirror maybe isn't the best choice. You know, it's, <laughs> it, it really runs a gamut. Kind of whatever we whatever we felt like. Um, you know, when we sat down to start writing them, we we split up the rules between the five keepers. Um, and we, we all wrote, you know, basically a random number of them. Um, yeah. and so maybe you guys can guess to see who wrote, which, um, <laughs> you know, but, um, you know, we, we all just kind of sat down and, and little by little, you know, whatever inspired us, uh, we wrote down. E-reader version. <laughs> I'm, I'm seeing about you, you guys, were you guys going digital with it, which I personally, I would love it, but I would possibly not love it because I'm thinking I want a coffee table, kind of a reference book, somebody, something to physically give to somebody. But is the e-reader, what was that a conscious decision from the get-go to the publisher decide upon that? Or what, what'd you think? Yeah, that's, you know, it's, I, I'm, I think we're, we're all in the same camp that, that yeah. a hardcover is just kind of the most beautiful format of a book possible you know it's kind of like the voluminatus version it's like a down tube shifter version of oh. of <laughs> of a uh, of a book you know and by the way yeah. i rode my bike with down tube shifters on saturday again and um there's a reason we've moved to ergo shifters <laughs> <laughs> um, but anyway I, you know it's it's kind of the it's the true experience you know that have a book in in your hand and to smell it and to hear the sound it makes when you turn the pages um, but the reality of economics is that, um, you know, you need to offer a, a an electronic version of it. Yeah. So uh, from the beginning, we knew that we would do one. This wasn't an easy process. I can only imagine. I mean, everybody thinks like, crap, I can write a book. I can crank out some pages and just send them to a publisher and he prints them off and makes them a nice little thing like that. You you guys have been working on this for a while. Yeah, we, we worked on it for about a year. Um which I think is actually a pretty short turnaround for a, a book of this nature. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I think that's pretty quick, but it's, uh, and it's all new material. It's, it's, um, you know, we, we didn't take any of the, the old posts and, and put them in the book, um, you know, virtually with the exception of a few paragraphs, it's, it's all new material. Wow. Um, and, um, 
yeah, we, we wrote it. We finished the manuscript on January 1st. Um, we all kind of patted ourselves on the back and thought that that was more or less going to be the end of the process. But it turns out there's actually quite a lot of work to do on a book once you've finished writing it, like editing it and trimming it and cutting it and getting the rights to use photos and, you know, all kinds of, all yeah. kinds of crazy things that I was totally naive about. Um, a good friend of mine, Jess Thompson, who's a, a well-known food, food writer, um, in the Seattle area, you know, she, she, she only nodded knowingly when I told her how much work it was after you finished writing. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, first of all, where can it be attained? And second of all, what kind of a, you know, okay, for those of us who are obviously involved in the site and involved in the lifestyle, it's going to be something we're definitely going to cling on to and grab and, and, you know, and laugh and love and, and, and enjoy but is there a is there another specific target audience you think because i'm thinking okay I'm, i might know some people who are involved or kind of getting into the sport would this be i almost seem it like a, you know welcome to the brotherhood not to sound too creepy kind of a gift <laughs> yeah I, I think so i think um uh, you know our, our intention definitely i think we we have a reputation for being kind of snobbish and you know for being jerks and um <laughs> You know, that's, that's unfortunate. That's definitely not our, our plan or our goal. You know, our, our, our goal is to have anybody become more passionate about the sport. Um, we're passionate and, you know, we, we can't do anything but think about cycling. Um, and so we're hoping other people feel the same way and, and hopefully through this book, they might find that. So I would say, yeah, that, you know, it's almost like the newer somebody is to the sport, the more relevant the, the, the book might be. If somebody's been away from the sport for a while, maybe it's really relevant. But also for people who've who've been doing you know doing this forever and have never skipped a beat, you know there might be some uh, camaraderie that comes through. So I'd say there's you know target audience is pretty broad. Yeah. Anybody who wants to love cycling a little more, where can they grab it? Where where it's obviously not it's not out yet. You do have the sample I saw that's available and things like that. But yep yep. So the book. Um, at this stage is through a, a UK publisher. Um, and so it's actually only available in stores in the Commonwealth. Um, and the release date is June 20th. Lucky for us, Amazon um, is pretty gracious when it comes to how they ship. So yeah. you can actually order it through the UK site um, on Amazon. And um, I think all told, people are saying that all told for the price of the book and shipping, it's about 25 bucks US oh, okay. um, to get it delivered to your doorstep. So, um, you know, it's pretty reasonable, I think. Um, and Amazon is probably going to be a little slower shipping from the UK, but it'll, it shouldn't be too bad. Now, is that just because of the publisher setup or was that, do you guys find there's a lot more enthusiasm in the UK? Well, I think the, I think the British and the Australians, um, kind of share our our sinister sense of humor um you know kind of inherently i think you know they're all kind of naturally about as crazy as as we are um so i think that there's a there's a natural you know a natural ease into the into the nature of our discussions um for those people but our, our biggest following is actually in the united states um and it's taken a little bit longer to catch on in the states um but you know, we're we're catching on, and and people are getting that we're just about having fun, and that we're not actually, um, you know, fascists about this stuff. So um, it's you know it's and it is going to be released in the states next year. So we do we did sell it to a, a U.S. publisher, W.W. W. Norton, um, 
great, great people over there, and uh, we're going to be working on repackaging it for the U.S. It'll be essentially the same book, change all the Y's to I's entire, things like that, <laughs> swap all the single and double quotes. No, I bet you didn't know that in the U.K. they use quotes opposite from yeah. how they use it in the States. I had no idea. No fair. I want that. Well, then I'm getting mine from the from the Brit, British pop, uh, publisher, so that's just kind of my <laughs> Yeah, head, yeah. But. Um, but it'll be mostly the same content, at least, um, you know, maybe slightly different repackaging, and uh, and we'll probably release it around this time next year. Oh, okay, okay. So, you know, and, and he, this is kind of a good segue to kind of get, I wanted to pick your brains about some specific topics and things like that in the state of cycling right now. You know, we, we talk about how cycling in America has has had its growth and has had its its boom and I, th- I think you could maybe degree, agree with me that we're on kind of a, oh shit, kind of a moment right now in terms of the growth of the sport and, um, you know, with our, our tainted heroes and things like that. <laughs> and then we talk about how it is over in Europe and we talk about some of the things. Maybe, maybe it comes easier to the people in Europe because it's been a part of their lives for so long. And um, I want to kind of talk to you and ask you, pick your brains about kind of the purity in cycling. And, you know, you guys focus really heavily on that. I don't want this to, to get into a drug show. You know, the cycling, cycling and drugs is so huge right now. But you and I had talked before we went on the air about, uh, about kind of the, the first American wave of cycling, the time of Greg LeMond, Andy Hampston, Boyer, uh, Jacques Boyer, and the 7-Eleven team and that model that they came out um, and 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 about the purity back in those times. Maybe it was before the drugs were available. Maybe it's before the drugs were de- we could detect them. But I don't know about you. I grew up into cycling with those names, and maybe that's why I became so passionate about the sport. Yeah, you know, it's um, doping's doping, and cheating's cheating, and cycling's yeah. a hard sport. Um, you know, it's a really really hard sport, and I think. Um, it being as hard as it is, it's just kind of, you know, just really well positioned for people fig- trying to figure out ways to make it easier. Um, yeah. And so that's that's just a, a, you know, as long as a human is involved in it, you know, there's always going to be some questionable judgment. So, um, you know, that that aside, I think um, I think the the drugs really changed in in you know basically 1990 um, or, or right around in that era. Um, you know, the before that it was amphetamine and steroids and, um, you know, drugs that certainly, um, certainly made a difference in, in, in your, in your performance, but in a, in a slightly different way. And and each one of them had side effects. So for example, um, you know, steroids, in fact, um, my, my partner is on, on steroids right now because she's got this lung infection. All she wants to do is eat, you know, it's they, they make yeah. you really, really hungry. And um, as a as a racing cyclist, obviously, being on steroids then is maybe not the greatest thing in the world because you're going to get bloated. Jesus, I'm uh, in, I'd be in trouble as it is. Yeah. <laughs> uh, right, right. And, um, you know, so so the, the guys doing steroids were maybe a little heavier and um, the, the guys on amphetamine were pretty stupid. You know, I'm, if you've... Yeah. I've, I haven't personally done coke or anything like that but um my my understanding is that it doesn't make you a smarter person <laughs> <laughs> yeah you, you got me on that one i'm a little out of experience on that unfortunately <laughs> and this isn't the time or so, place to talk about no i'm kidding <laughs> but so you know so you you you're as a clean rider you're racing against somebody who's a little heavy and you're racing against somebody who's maybe not tactically as astute as they could be um 
you know, at any given, given moment. And Andy Hampson talked about that, yeah. uh, you know, in, in his era, it was, it was easy to kind of go against these guys um, because they were kind of predictable and stupid and they'd go off too early and too hard and um, they couldn't, couldn't hold on to it. So um, you could deal with that. And, and Laurent Fignon says in his book, I think very correctly that um, the drugs could have, made a rider win or lose a race um on any given day but it would never convert a champion or you know a non-champion into a into a champion and it would never cause a champion to you know continuously lose against a worse a, a worse rider so it was they were different kinds of drugs um but when EPO came out and human growth hormone and um you know the, these other drugs that they started taking in the 90s um you know Human growth hormone is a is a is a um, dwarfism cure. You know, yeah. um, it's supposed to keep you from being a little person. And and you know, healthy cyclists are taking this stuff. That's a dramatic, dramatic drug to be taking. Um, and it it has diabetic side effects. So you've got to take insulin to counteract the the diabetic effect. Um, and then EPO, of course you know, can, can dramatically increase how much oxygen your blood can carry. Um, and Tyler Hamilton, I think in his book, he, he yeah. pointed out that a rider on EPO had only a few percent, I can't remember the number exactly, a few percent increased power, but they could, they could maintain their, their, an anaerobic effort for 80% longer than an undoped rider. Yeah. So that's a, that's a really dramatically longer amount of time that you can go hard you know yeah, um, absolutely but at that stage a clean rider is maybe maybe they can win on a day but they're not going to win a grand tour against a doped rider so are we am i maybe are we romanticizing it or was that time before 1990 the true uh, camelot the true perfect time of of cycling when it was at its purest I don't know. I mean, no, I mean, for me, it's, I'm, I keep looking back, you know, I have a picture of, of LeMond on my, on my desktop and, um, you know, he's, he's standing there in a lobby Claire Jersey. He's got, he's on a steel, you know, bike with uh can't be super record, you know, the cable still going over the top of his bars oh, and things like that, yeah. you know? And I, I keep looking back at that in the true romantic state. And I'm wondering to myself, is that, is that me because of my age? Is that me because of, you know, I'm, I'm not necessarily fast anymore. Um, do we look back upon those times and think that was the time when cycling was at its purest form? Yeah, I don't know. I think, I think the general consensus is that the fifties was kind of the golden era, yeah. you know? Um, and I, I'm not sure that I agree with that, but I think that's kind of what, what people would normally say, but I think, um, you know, I, am with you totally. And I, I don't know if, if we're right or wrong, but I'm, I'm completely with you there. I think frame building, um, and component making was, um, was kind of at its Zenith, you know, yeah, like 83 and 84, um, you know, you still had the cables obviously coming out of the brakes. Um, and the, the derailers were boxy and crank sets were boxy, you know, everything had a, had a rough edge to it. And, it, you know, a crank set kind of looked like two cranks on an axle, you know? Yeah. Um, and, and then in, you know, I think it was 85 Campy came out with, um, you know, the Delta brake and, oh, and that God. beautiful, sexy crank set and Mavic had the, the SSC crank set, which, you know, 
weighed like three pounds, but it was gorgeous. So did the um, Delta brakes. Those things oh, weighed, those were anchors, but yeah, they were they're anchors and they were, they were anti-lock brakes. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I stopped too, unfortunately, but, <laughs> um, you know, but that stuff was just so incredibly stunning and it just didn't seem like they cared so much about the weight. Um, you know, and, and the bikes were beautiful and the, you know, they're still hand building bikes with lugs. And yeah, I, I think it was, the components were at the, at their most beautiful. Um, and the bikes were at their most beautiful and the riders were, you know, they, they might've been doing something naughty here and there, but they were for the most part, I think, cleaner riders. Um, yeah, I, I, I totally agree with you. Like 1980 to 19, 90 for me was the coolest era in cycling. Yeah. Well, and you know, as I said, I don't want to turn this into a whole reflection thing, but I mean, I've got Le Mans uh, Palmares on my screen here, and I'm looking, you know, 85, for example, second in the tour, uh, first in the course classic, classic, uh, second in the worlds, uh, second, uh, third in the Giro. And fourth in the Perry Roubaix. I mean, you don't see that. No. Fourth from in the Perry Roubaix. I think he was second in Lombardy, wasn't he? Uh, eighty-six. Eighty-six. He was second in. I think it was eighty. No, it was earlier. But it in eighty-six, he was second in San Remo. Yeah. Um, you know, he yeah, he was an all he was an all rounder for sure. And um, and still a riding. I mean, he, next year he won his first tour. He also, you know, he still won, uh, well, a couple other things, but, you know, second in Milan San Remo that year, third in Paris Nice in 86, you know, it's second in, uh, third in the Tour of Suisse. So you're seeing these guys being able to, well, Greg, for example, doing this all year long, and we're not seeing that from riders anymore. Is, do you think that's because the recycling, the racing's become that much more specialized? Or, you know, I, I don't know. I, I think it probably has. Um, we're not seeing the fact that, that guys can race an entire season when you've got everybody saying, okay, I'm training specifically for those three weeks in July. I'm training specifically for the Giro or anything like that. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Yeah, I think it's partly the money that's associated with it, right? The, the, the reward of winning one of those big events yeah. kind of outweighs the risk of... of doing too much racing and we all know and Paisage all today demonstrated kindly for us um you know the 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 negative side effect of racing and crashing um, yeah oh god you know so you know there, there's a lot of risk and i think that's a big reason why farmstrong was always um focusing on just a handful of events was partly to reduce the risk of of crashing out and breaking something but, um but a guy like lamond you know i mean lamond and hampston um 
those guys were trendsetters. They were just so incredibly cool. And like, to me, everything about them was cool. I mean, they're totally my idols. Um, you know, they seemed like really good people. I, I knew Greg personally um, back then through the, through, he lived in Minnesota. I lived in Minnesota. And we, we crossed paths a lot skiing. Okay. okay. Um, you know, he was just the nicest guy in the world. We'd, we'd be sitting at a, at a ski lodge. Um, you know, this was, this was the winter before 1990. So sitting in a ski lodge and it's like, man, the Tour de France winner just walked in here. Um, like everybody knew it. And, you know, my mom's going around telling everybody to, to shut up and not make a big deal out of it. So that poor guy <laughs> can just enjoy his afternoon. And, uh, you know, he recognized us and knew that we spoke Dutch. So he, he swears at the top of his lungs, uh, in Dutch, you know, and, and my mom whips around and looks back at him, you know, and he's got the, the friendliest smile on his face that he had such an, has such an unbelievably friendly smile, you know, and like, so he's just sitting there with this huge grin on his face, uh, you know, having a little laugh at the fact that he totally made my mom freak out, you know, it was just, yeah, he's just a, you know, they were just great guys. They were nice. They were friendly. They didn't, uh, you know, his, his, his spat with, he know, apart, the yeah. athletes seemed to get along well. They seemed to like each other and respect each other. They didn't have any of this kind of animosity and hatred towards one another that that um, that you see more of these days. Um, you know, it just seemed more wholesome and generally like they were, you know, they weren't getting paid as much, so they're probably doing it for the love a little bit more. Um, you know, maybe that showed showed a little bit. Okay. okay. Um. God, that's that's a great story. I, I was just sitting back listening to that. I wish I had something to drink. Um, <laughs> why do you think it is today that we don't get riders competing that Giro Tour double that Greg was doing at those times, or you know, and continuing on with those longer seasons? Uh, well, I think I think to be fair, Hazajal tried to do it. This yeah. Year. Um, well, he might now. Well, depending on how his medical results come out today, in terms of what he did to himself in the crash, but he might. <laughs> we might see him in 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 the tour, even though the Giro was kind of a train wreck. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, so it's, but it's, it's pretty uncommon. It's, it's just, I think it's just so hard. If you, if you look at some of the studies, um, of, you know, kind of what happens to your blood as you go through a grand tour, um, you know, you, you just keep getting more and more anemic as you're going through yeah. and um, you basically just suck more as with every stage that comes by. So I can't imagine having a month break in between the two and coming back and doing it a second time. You know, I think it's just really hard. <laughs> I think it's yeah. really hard unless yeah. you're, unless you're totally juiced. Um, you know? Yeah. Now, what do you think Greg could have done without the hunting accident? Oh my God. I, well, I think, um, would we truly have a five time tour winner? Yeah. Well, I think we might have, well, how many years with it? So I think it would have been, One, he would have bookended everything from yeah. 86 to 90 you know yeah. um i can't imagine him losing to roche and i can't imagine him losing to um delgado, delgado. so that's five years in a row he would have done um and um i think he wouldn't have, I, I don't think he would have started to focus on the tour so much um because you know he in 86 he definitely showed that he was very very willing to race um you yeah know, all the races. He even still continued to contest Pony Bay um, later on in his, in his career. But uh, yeah, I think he would have been racing year round. He would have been focusing on the tour and trying to win that as many times as possible, obviously, but he would have been on the results year round. And, um, you know, maybe that would have pushed off that specialization um, 
you know, for another decade or so before that became really popular. Because uh, he was the first one to really, after his hunting accident, he, he couldn't race all year anymore. You know, he was carrying, you know, however many lead pellets around in his body. And, um, you know, he just, he just wasn't as healthy and as strong anymore. So he had to, he had to kind of dial it back and focus on the tour. And, and that's what started that big trend. Um, and so I think that would have taken a longer time to start. So with Hampson also in there, I, I've, I've had a long time ago, I had Andy on the show and um, first of all, one of the more humbled guys I've ever talked to um, really got, has his head on straight in terms of what he was and where he is and how he's, how he's going. And, you know, for all the listeners, everybody remembers Andy from the Giro win and that stage, especially over the Gavia being, you know, that unforgettable image in the snow. And then I think about the Giro this year where they're turning off stages because of the snow. And, you know, I keep in the back of my mind, I'm going, ah, what a bunch of pussies. But, uh, <laughs> exactly. you know, and I, I personally feel of, of all the writers that I've been able to talk to, Andy is one of the purest. Um, I don't, I don't think he was ever even tempted from any of that stuff. And I think his, his career was cut short of victory victories due to that rise of, mm-hmm. of drug use in the later years. Um, he's been quoting, in fact, as, as saying, in fact, and I'm going to paraphrase him a little bit that, you know, he didn't get slower. The races just got faster. Right. Yeah, yeah, I've read that too. Yeah, and I mean, your 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 thoughts on all this kind of stuff, and you know, and especially Andy and what he could have done in his career if the site if the sport hadn't gone the way it did. Yeah, you know, I I think I think it was '94, right, um, when he won on Alpe d'Huez. Is yeah, that right. Yeah. Um, you know, I think that's a great example of of how a um, you know how how a clean rider can race against doped riders um, on a single day. You know. Yeah. Like, but that kind of, you know, he, he certainly wasn't, um, back to being fourth overall, like he was, um, in the mid eighties. Um, I love Eclair. So yeah, I, I definitely think that there, there's a, there's a host of riders that, that genuinely got totally hosed by the doping that came in like the EPO era. Um, you know, I think it, it's not just the, not just, uh, the Americans, but you know, there was, you know, Graham Obrey, um, you know, he, he pretty bluntly has stated that, that, you know, he wasn't as successful as he could have been because of all the people doing drugs and his unwillingness to, to do that just really kind of got in the way of his career. Um, Edwig von Hoendonk, um, similarly retired from, from racing for that reason. Um, you know, but Andy Hampson, I think, um, he demonstrated early on in his career that he was definitely at the, you know, the very top as a stage racer, um, and also in, in, um, shorter events like the Tour de Suisse, yeah. uh, which he won, you know, so I, 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 I find it totally believable if it's true that he didn't dope, which, which I believe, yeah. um, you know, then I think it's a completely plausible story that his, he was, he was cut sh- short of that, you know, and, and it's, he's not the only person saying that, that these two speeds happen. There's a story of, um, Greg LeMond and, and Charlie Mote, who were, uh, you know, Charlie or Chuck Flop, as I call him, um, was, <laughs> was always a little, you know, he, he was, he was well known for being very, very clean. He was very adamantly against doping. Um, and he was even as, as coach of the French national team, when, uh, Rochard won, um, totally doped to the gills, you know, he was, he was furious when he found out that, that he was doped. Um, 
you know, it, he didn't do anything about it, but he was furious about it. He was, yeah. you know, he was one of those clean guys. Um, and there's a story of Lamond and, and Mote, you know, at the end of, I don't know, like stage one of the, of the 92 or three tour, you know, and they kind of just look at each other in amazement, you know, at how fast that was. Um, and there, there's a story of Fignol, you know, similarly, you know, I, I don't think Fignol ever did EPO either. Um, yeah. you know, and, and, He's sitting there in the bunch, you know, riding along and all of a sudden they're cracking at like 50 or 55 K an hour. And so he hammers up to the front to, to look at what's going on. And, you know, there's some domestique sitting on the tops of the bars with his, with his arms stick straight, just spinning along with no clue that he's going 50 or 55, you know? Yeah. Um, the, the, the sport just, it, I mean, it changed. It was, it was curtains for, for anyone who didn't want to jump on the train. Shit. Well, it's it seems like also you know not to again just kind of you know woe is the woe to the days and things like that. But also I I've talked a lot of times and and my and my co-host on the other you know on on with the other episodes, Mark you know has a tendency to bust my balls a little bit on this. I tend to wax sentimental on a lot of the equipment issues and you know the steel frames and and that rolling art that those things were and i look back upon those things and i look back upon the prices about about yeah. the equipment back then and then i i consider it and i don't know my inflation rates and things like that but it seems like i could obtain the same stuff lamon was on for an easier it, it was easier to obtain right you bet it was and um it, i think i spent um let's see i, I spent 700 and some dollars on my first Cannondale race bike and I had Shimano 105 on it. Okay. Um, so, you know, a Shimano 105 bike, I think these days, um, you know, what, what does that cost you? 2,500 bucks. Oh, it, <laughs> I, I, I think that's, that's the minimum now. Yeah. And, and, you know, yeah, like I said, I understand that there's going to be inflation, but, um, you know, when I was I was a junior riding a steel choach with a freaking super record on it, and my dad wasn't looking at me going, oh, my God, take care of that thing. You know, he was, but it wasn't this, holy shit, Pat, you're riding on the equivalent of, a, of our car. You yeah, know? And right. now it is. I'm selling a car here yep. in the next couple of weeks, and with it, I'm going to buy a new bike. <laughs> and, yeah. And I remember even in 19, uh, 2006, um, Team BMC, BMC was um, was bragging about the fact that they had a $10,000 time trial bike for each of their riders, you know, and it was like, what? $10,000 yeah. time trial bike? Yeah, Jesus. It was 2006. Um, and now it's like, man, that's a cheap road bike. It's only ten grand. Yeah. <laughs> and I, um, I have a how huge... How much is that Cervelo, California? Yeah. It's off the charts. Yeah, I, I just, I have such a problem with that because here we're trying to, you know, this whole thing is about growing the sport. Has cycling become, and this is a question I guess for you, has cycling become a sport of uh, twenty to forty year old men? <laughs> and I, I, I personally, in a lot of, in a lot of ways, in my opinion, I feel it's becoming that, and that's why we're not necessarily seeing some of the growth we're seeing in, in, in the sport anymore. In the in the local level, you're in a larger community than I am, so you could probably give me a bit of your demographic or the site's demographic. The site's demographic, I think. Well, I'm I'm 37, I think. Um, I think the you know the site's demographic is leans towards the older range, you know, yeah. 30 to 55 ish or so, maybe even. And then there's definitely outliers on on both sides, but I would say that's the core. That's, whoops, sorry about that. Um, that's the core. 
Um, but you know, I think the sport can be as accessible as you want it to be. There's there's a there's a newcomer on the site that today or or yesterday posted up a, a picture of his bike, and it's a it's an old steel frame. It has down tube shifters and um, Shimano 105, and you know, I'm sure he picked that up for a you know a relatively small amount of money, um, yeah. you know, in the hundreds of dollars range. And it's a beautiful, well-functioning bike. Um, and there's, there's nothing wrong with it. It's not as sexy as my new Velo Forma that I just built up and, and Voluminati custom paint job, you know, but it's, it, it'll do the job for him. And he'll, you know, he'll start the the journey towards becoming a Voluminatus um, yeah. happily on that bike. And it's, you know, I'm sure that that was a very affordable bike. Um, so it kind of is what you make it to be. Um, and if you're willing to, to take your time building your bike, if you're willing to pick up a frame that fits you and is a great price, then pick it up and then wait a while before you buy the wheels and wait a while until you get a group set for it. And you can buy the shifters, you know, at a steal and then wait a while and then find a good deal on a derailleur and, you know, and piece yeah. it together. And, and that makes it a lot more affordable in a lot of cases. Um, so, you know, it, it kind of, I completely agree with you. The sport's gotten ridiculously expensive um, and it's inaccessible unless you're, you know, unless you're somebody who has, um, you know, a, a well-paying job. Yeah. Um, but on the other hand, you know, if, if you're willing to do the work and if you're willing to not ride the latest, greatest, sexiest thing in, in the world, then I think it, it can still be as accessible as it needed to be as it needs to be. And, um, you know, nobody should ever scoff at somebody buying an, an inexpensive bike and, and, using that as a, as a way to get into the sport. You think somebody could be competitive on some of that older stuff in today's amateur or club scene, at least. That's a different question, right? That's a, yeah, that's a, they can certainly enjoy riding it. You know? Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. I, yeah. Can they be competitive? Yeah, they can, because you know, I, you know, um, I've always wanted to test that theory. Chris Boardman just barely, beat Eddie Merrick's hour record, you know, and Eddie Merrick's, if he came out on his old steel bike, he would crush us. We yeah. would be weeping pebbles of sand at the side of the road, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. So you, you can, if you're, if you're determined enough, but it'll be harder. I mean, my, I'm riding my rain bike right now, my beloved Cervelo R3 cracked and, you know, I had to bench it and, um, you know, it was, I was training on a 15 pound, carbon wheeled you know beauty that you know you basically look at the pedals going uphill and you're flying you know <laughs> um, you know that yeah it was yeah it was way easier to go hard on that thing than it is on my rain bike with my heavy box section rims and everything else you know um it makes a difference but i don't you know i don't think it would keep i i, I could happily race on the on the rain bike and be fine you know yeah I've always I've always wanted to test that theory out to try and actually go into a season on a nineteen nine everything everything yeah. built below before like ninety two, you know whenever the first STI shifters come out so you can actually not have to reach down to your down tube, right right. <laughs> but to be able to do a full season on a steel bike with GP three GP threes were they GP threes GP fours. I'm trying to remember my old Mavic rims um, and all that kind of stuff and, and see if you could hang or at least, you know, be mildly competitive with that kind of a kit. But I just don't have the guts to do it. <laughs> I um, think you could hang. I, I don't know. I, you could sit in the bunch. You could be pack fodder for sure. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but, I, you know, I, just even with the down tube shifters, man, I was like I said, I was out riding that thing. Uh, but I loved it. You know, I love the, you know, in, in a lot of ways, I love the fact that 
have to reach down and, and shifting, you know, I sucked at shifting, shifting for the first hour and a half, you know, yeah. just sucked at it. Oh yeah. Because you had to get that fine spot. My tandem still yeah. has down tube shifters. So it's, yeah, when my wife and I go out, I still have to tweak it. They're simplex. They're gorgeous. So I oh, can't switch man. out of them. Yeah. And I would, that's, that's courage right there to ride a tandem with one hand. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, you know, I, you know, so I'm climbing and I'm like, Oh, I'm in too big a gear. So out of the saddle, sit down, yeah, shift, get back out of the saddle. Oh, that's not the right gear. Sit down, shift. You know, it's a totally different, it's a total art form. And the, and the pros used to factor that into their, into their attacks. You know, yeah. it's like, Oh man, okay. I'm going to have to sit down and figure out, you know, I'm shifting into my attacking gear. It's going to yeah. be awesome. I'm going <laughs> to turn off index shifting because it's too loud. So they'll know that I'm shifting. Oh God. Remember that crack, crack. Your yeah. whole bike would just resonate <laughs> with that shit. The, I had a Cannondale, um, Oh, you had a pregnant bike back then. Those Six. things looked like they were going to give birth to another bike. They were so fast. <laughs> yeah, they totally did. <laughs> uh, but those big tubes, man, and the and the index shifting, it was just unbelievable how loud that click was. Oh, God, yeah. Just ring through the whole frame. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Jesus. Guess what I'm doing, guys. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you're shifting down and you're quitting. so you know and and i guess one of my last little kind of mini topics for you here is is going to be and we talk we've i've been hearing a lot about this lately and i have some friends who've been chatting about it in terms of how what is happening to racing and the shift and you can tell me about this if you're if if your area is right about it or if anybody's saying some of this on on their own communities weeknight racing in terms of how it's doing with weekend racing. I have some friends who are thinking that weeknight racing, the Tuesday night or the Wednesday night series, is, are starting to kill the concept of weekend racing, that people aren't necessarily traveling to their races anymore. Boy, you know, I don't think um, I'm the right person to ask about that. I really? just, um, I stay pretty local also with... Yeah, uh, so do I. Cyclocross, cyclocross um, you know, I try to stick to the to the you're probably right i try to stick to the to the local stuff so i can still have a family life um you know but that was back in back, way back in the day i traveled all over the place i did too and and that's you know i'm remembering that the family jumping into the car and we were driving all over the place um i live in the northwest also and we were you know all over the washington idaho montana oregon every weekend um, and now we, I don't see that happening as often. I'm looking at the race calendar and I'm not seeing a whole lot of those types of things. I'm seeing bigger numbers at those weeknight series races, but I'm not seeing it. And I think it's because of the commitment involved. Yeah, I think you're right. It's, um, and you know, I, I don't want to be too quick to judge that because I'm just happy to see people racing, Yeah, uh, you know, but yeah, for sure. I, you know, it's, um, the, the weekend scene certain certain or the, the the weeknight scene is what I mean to say. Yeah. Certainly sounds like it's you know, it seems to be talked a lot an awful lot. Um, you know, I guess I hear that more than I hear about the weekend races. Yeah. How do you see the sport growing, or do you see it evolving in any shape? I see just your most recent post on the site talking about your your gravel gravur or however I'm supposed to pronounce it. Gravur, yeah. gravur <laughs> based uh, 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 brand new Velaforma. That's a gorgeous bike, by the way. Uh, I'm looking at it right now, um, and and you're taking this out on gravel roads. It's not a cyclocross setup. It's a, it's something like that. I mean, and that popped into my head. I'm going shit, maybe somebody could create races that are kind of this type of a race where it's a distance thing, it's it's gravel roads, it's, 
you know, it's, it's not necessarily a crit, a time trial or a road race. Yeah. And in fact, it's, uh, people are doing this. There's a, there's a race in Montana. Um, I forget what it's called. Uh, forgive me. Um, and there are two races in Minnesota. I think actually Minnesota might be, um, kind of one of the, one of the real leading forces in this type of sport, especially up in Northern Minnesota. Uh, you know, back when I was training there, it was always actually kind of, in, you know, your, your training route was dictated possible I'll be up there um, in September in, in Duluth, Minnesota to, to go do that race. It's a century on, you know, mostly gravel roads. I think it's 20K on asphalt and the rest of it is all on gravel. Um, and in fact, they'd go on snow machine trails too to bridge the different gravel roads. Oh, wow. Um, you know, so it's almost like you have pave sectors of, of like real, like basically a mountain bike trail that you're doing on a cross bike. Um, and and then you're riding gravel roads for the majority of the race, um, and it's it's dual purpose. You know, it's, there's there's people that race it, and then it's just an experience to go do it. Um, and people bring backpacks with lunches and wow. you know, and hang out and really enjoy themselves. So I, uh, I, I had lost you for a sec during some of that description. Is this kind of like a almost like a fondo kind of a concept, or is this? Uh, well, I'm not sure out. that it's a yeah. It's kind of similar to a fondo concept. You're right. Okay. Um, and, and, and that you can, you know, you, you're timed, but there's only a select group of people that actually care, Yeah, uh, you know, and it's the, the, at least the heck of the North is, um, is entry free, right? So you, you don't have to pay to race it. The Almanzo, I think might have an entry fee. I'm not a hundred percent sure on that, but that's another popular race in, in Minnesota that, that is all on these gravel roads and it's, it's cool stuff, you know, it's really, really fun stuff. And, I'm particularly jazzed about it because, um, you know, I, I love mountain biking, honestly, but it's, um, you know, out here in the mountains, it, 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 it takes a lot. Certainly, you know, that's definitely a weekend thing. And, um, my partner and I like to do it together, but, um, it gets a lot of the trails are a little intimidating for her. And, um, you know, I don't want to have a broken wheel in the, in cougar country and, you know, die overnight. So it's, you know, it's, it's just a little bit complicated sometimes, and being on a gravel bike, you know, you can grab all these beautiful dirt roads up in the mountains and just go enjoy your day in, in a completely different way. It feels a lot like you're mountain biking. You know, you're, you're out in the wilderness. There's no traffic, um, you know, but you're also not on the, you know, you're, you're, it's not quite as, as, as inaccessible as mountain biking. So um, you can cover a lot of ground. You can go camping. Um, you know, it's just a, it's just, it's just a, a cool concept and, and, these types of adventure bikes, I think a lot of people call them, these bikes that you can take anywhere, um, you know, they're really grabbing hold. And I think that's going to be one of the things we really see getting traction over the next couple of years. Um, and, and like my cross bike, this, this Velaforma I just got, it's, um, it's a road bike, you know, or sorry, it's a cyclocross bike, but um, I tuned it, tuned the position exactly to mimic my road position. Wow. Um, you know, so I'm, I'm, riding this thing as though it's a road bike on gravel roads um come cross season i'll, I'll tweak the position to be a little bit more cross-friendly but um you know you're basically taking a, a cross frame and and converting it a little bit to be comfortable on roads you know and that's it's just hearing about some of these races you're talking about and and in fact cross still is able to do it you can get a good amount of people showing up doing the entire race and not worrying about where they are in the overall scheme of things. If you get dropped in a road race, you've just paid 
50, 80 bucks to yeah. ride by yourself. And, and right. there's no more racing anymore. It seems like this concept of this, this longer distance, uh, my family and I, we did do a mountain bike race last weekend where it was a six hour race. We did it as a team. You uh-huh. have an eight mile loop, you know, and everybody does as many loops as they can, or and we t- trade off, or you can do it solo. I see events like that, maybe per- perhaps being where maybe this sport's going to evolve a little bit. We're still going to have the crits, the road races, and the stage races, but I think um, it becomes a little less intimidating and it becomes a little less something that people can really grasp onto. I think triathlon has grasped that really well, that people can just do a triathlon and you know, flat flail through the water, barely make it on their bike and walk for the run, but they're still in the race. Yeah. And they're having fun, which is, yeah. which is matters. If, if they would just stop wearing the skinless sleeves or oh. skinless, yeah. Uh, or sleeveless shirts yeah. with arm, arm warmers. warmers. Yeah. Much happier about the sport, but <laughs> it's, um, you know, it's, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. And I think, um, you know, I love me a, a road race and a crit. You know, we were just down at the Ballard crit watching those guys um, race like, like crazy, you know, it was, um, you know, and, and actually, you know, we were watching um, the women's race um, and um, Vanderkitten is racing in the men's event as well, you know, so oh, the, God, the, yeah. it's actually kind of a progressive sport that way. I, I know um, in a lot of cases, women aren't, aren't allowed to race with men, but, in cycling and it's been this way for as, as as long as i can remember um you know women can just join the men's race um and that, you know i think that's incredibly cool that that it's that open um you know and and, and free to kind of get your ass just co- totally kicked if you want to but um watching the ballard current was just a cool event it's right down in old town ballard and you know there's some there, there's a i'm not going to call them cobblestone streets but there's brick streets you know yeah um and there's you know there's enough crashes to keep it interesting and there's enough racing and attacks to definitely keep it interesting and um you know it, it was great to see the turnout huge crowd um and even you know but to your point about paying a lot of money and getting shelled you know there, there are people riding you know probably a $10,000 bike getting dropped on the first lap and riding alone until they don't have the, you know, the courage to keep getting cheered on by people (laughs) and dropping out finally. But that's a lot of bread to drop, um, in a bike and then into your entry fee, uh, you know, to be off the back all day. Yeah. Well, it's just, you hope that they're encouraged to keep going and you hope that they, you know, they find somebody else to ride with them and then, then pass that on in some way, shape or form. And so that's, right. I guess that's what it's about. I don't think anybody can get directly involved into cycling without somebody there to help them do it. Yes. And that's a beautiful segue back into, uh, um, you know, and, yeah. uh, Back book, what you, know, you guys are doing exactly and that's, so that's exactly what the book is there for yeah. it's uh you know hopefully it'll help you learn a lot of things about the culture of the sport it'll hopefully um you know help you fall in love with it the way we fell in love with it um you know and, and that's the point um you know we're not trying to ostracize anyone we're not trying to prohibit somebody from being led into the club you know it's we we want people in the club we want you know, we want others to, to feel the way we do about the sport and hopefully the book will help. Well, it is available very soon as of, uh, June. What was the date you you mentioned? 20th, June 20th. Okay. And in the meantime, of course, if you haven't been to the site, if you've listened to this show and you haven't been to the site, you're obviously missing out on a lot of our inside jokes. 
So um, I, I told you I wouldn't keep you much longer than what I'm going to do. So, uh, Frank, thanks for coming on, man. And I, I love talking to you, and I love, I love the perspective of the site. It so is what I try to make my podcast about. I, I, in fact, I had a, a friend who was a listener say, by the way, you're, you're, trying, you're cheating from these guys. You're yelling these rules out to people that they have to follow, and it's already been published. And I was like, oh, shit. And then I found your site, and you were right. So you guys got it first. So <laughs> love having you on the show, man. Thanks for being here. My pleasure. My pleasure. Thanks. Anytime. Okay. Take care. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code buttery exclusions apply see site for details even when we're on a budget we still deserve nice things quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands they have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at 50 dollars, luxurious italian leather bags and so much more plus quince only works with factories that use safe ethical and responsible manufacturing get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with quince Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.